Well, our sermon text today is Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. If you don't have a Bible, we can get you one from the front table, or it's also printed on the back of your bulletin. If you look on the back, you'll see the entire sermon text printed there for you. And out of respect for the word of God, I'll ask that you stand for the reading of the scriptures this morning. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word. It says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask him to bless his word to us and teach us by his spirit this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And we come and ask you again that you would teach us. We cannot uh, understand and profit from your word the way that we should without your without your work in us, so we pray that you would work in us by your Holy Spirit, each one here, that you would work in us by your Spirit and give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, if you've been with us over the last uh, few weeks or so, or if you've just been reading through Mark's gospel as we've gone along, you've you've probably noticed a recurring theme. Uh, We mentioned it, uh, I believe even last week, that this recurring theme in these last couple chapters of unbelieving, uh, the unbelieving Jewish religious leaders over and over again coming to Jesus one after the other while he's in the temple, and really most of it's on the same day, testing the Lord Jesus Christ, trying to trip him up in his words. And this was with evil intent, malicious intent. It says in Mark 11:18 that they were doing all this uh, to try to destroy him. The word is destroy. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to cause him... T- try to get him to say something with which they could bring charges against him, capital charges. They wanted to get rid of him. Now, we saw in chapters 11 and 12, back in chapter 11, we saw the chief priests and the scribes. Remember, Jesus cleansed the temple, was turning over the tables of the money changers, and they came to him and asked him, you know, where'd you get this authority to do what you're doing? And he silenced them. Then the Pharisees and the Herodians came and chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. And then last time we saw the Sadducees in verses 18 to 27. They took their turn. Everybody's taking their turn trying to see if they can get the best of of Jesus and testing him with with their words. And they all failed. One after another, Jesus just kind of swats away their questions. And he doesn't dodge the question like we would do. He answers their questions for the most part. But he answers them in such a way that either turns their question back on them or just gets away from all of their testing and, and, and is still sitting there, still standing tall, and, and uh, no one is able to uh, overturn what he says. Well, here we find one last, not a group, but a person 
coming to take a crack at Jesus, coming to try to see what he can do. And in verse 28, Mark says this. Mark says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing. Them is Jesus and the Sadducees, right? Heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he, that's Jesus, answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? So he hears... He hears the debate going on. Here's Jesus sees that Jesus answered the Sadducees very well. Uh, and so he has a question of his own. Now, Matthew has a parallel account of this, of this incident. And he gives us a little bit more details about this, this lone unnamed scribe. In Matthew 22, verses 34 to 35, Matthew writes this. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, that's a scribe, Ask him a question to test him. So, you know, it's easy sometimes to get the wrong idea from Mark's account if you're not kind of paying attention to both and think, oh, this guy's just an innocent bystander, a curious bystander, comes to Jesus just to ask him a nice question, no evil intent. Uh, Now, he he goes a different direction when Jesus answers than the rest of them did. But his intent was to test Jesus. That's still what's going on throughout this entire section. And the very last word of our chapter, of, the, of our text, that is, should be a hint towards that. What does it say? After that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So these weren't honest, sincere, well-meaning questions, any of them, even this one by this scribe. Now, Mark's account doesn't emphasize the, the, uh, the trap aspect of this question, uh, but at least originally, no matter how it ended up at the end, this was intended as a trap or a test of Jesus. It wasn't an innocent question. Now, what, what's his question? It's almost, for us, it's kind of hard to read it and see what the trap is. I, I know I, I've had trouble when I was preparing for this sermon. Like, what, what was he expecting him to say? It's hard to tell. But he asks him, which commandment is the most important commandment of all? Out of all God's commandments, which one is the one? The most important one. Now, it's been said that there are 613. No, I did not number them myself. uh, But it's been said many times that there are 613 commandments of one kind or another in the law of Moses. That's a lot of commandments. Uh, That's Genesis through Deuteronomy. So he's really asking out of all those, out of 613, if that's the number that he thought of too, which one is the most important commandment of all? Now, what... What did this scribe think Jesus was going to say? What was he hoping Jesus would say to trip him up? We don't really know. Mark, Mark doesn't, doesn't tell us. You know, maybe, just maybe he thought that Jesus would have something negative to say about the law in some way. You know, if, if you remember the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, in, in Matthew 5, 17 to 18, Jesus says something that might strike you and I as a little curious, but there must have been a reason for it. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's, the, that's like a shorthand for the whole Old Testament, right? You know, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. I mean, think about it. Heaven and earth are going to pass away before God's word fails. Before it, before it passes away. So maybe, maybe this scribe thought that he was going to say something that would gave the impression that he was doing away with the law, that he was doing something so utterly new that the law was no longer applying. 
Or maybe he just thought that Jesus would, would, would be tricked somehow into putting, you know, kind of pitting one part of God's law against another. You know, that's, that's kind of a danger that you could run into if you're going to start ranking commandments. You know, if you say, let's just take the Ten, the Ten Commandments, which one's the most important? Well, when you talk about one of them being more important, there's a chance that you could be understood as saying the other ones aren't quite as important, that you could keep the one and disregard the other. Maybe that's what he thought he was trying, uh, what, maybe that's what he was hoping Jesus would, would say. Well, whatever the case, Jesus' answer here in our passage, as well as in Matthew's parallel account, has come to be known as the Great Commandment. You know, in some ways, it's been pointed out uh, by, by uh, some commentators that, you know, think about the blessings that have come to us in the scriptures based upon these evil questions. Now, Jesus could have just said, I know why you're asking these things. I'm not going to bother answering you. Come, come back to me when you have a sincere question. He uses them as teachable moments, not, not just for the crowd standing there, but for us as well, we have the great commandment of all things in Scripture because of an, an insincere, a seemingly insincere question on the part of this unnamed scribe. Now, the first thing you might know, and we said it when we did the Scripture reading in the book of Deuteronomy earlier in the service, that the first thing that you hear is the Shema, no pun intended. Hear, O Israel. That's the word Shema is the word hear, the command to hear. And this is what Jesus says. He quotes Deuteronomy 6. Verses 4 to 5 in Leviticus 19, he says, The most important, the most important commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God. How? With all your heart or from the whole heart, is another way to put that. With all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So, Jesus takes Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 5, and Leviticus 19:18, two parts of the, of the law of Moses, and combines them. They weren't, you know, Deuteronomy 6 didn't have the love your neighbor as yourself part. It had to be a different, it's from a different part of the law of Moses, of the Old Testament. But so the great commandment, so-called, is, is really two commandments combined together. And those two commandments, according to Jesus, can't be separated from each other. It's not an either or. He asked for one commandment. Jesus gave him two. They're like two sides of a coin. You can't have the one without the other. Now, the first of these commandments is what? It's that we are to love God. We are to love God. The second is that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Um, why, why does Jesus combine these two? Why does he teach them in such a way as to make them inseparable and really part of one, in a sense, part of one great commandment why does he are these things combined anywhere else in the old testament they're certainly combined in the new testament both here and other places but are they combined elsewhere explicitly in the old testament some commentators that i have read uh, seem to suggest that they were not that this was a new thing well i would take uh, i would take a difference from that uh, view and why do i why do i say that because they're found together in the 10 commandments which 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 you know from the scripture we just had in Deuteronomy 6, the very chapter right before that is what they were referring to, was the Ten Commandments. They, they're found in your Old Testament twice, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. They're put there twice for us. Well, what are the first four commandments about? The first four commandments of the Ten deal with how we are to show our love to God. What does loving God look like? 
Not just in your hearts, not just your emotions and your sentiment, nothing wrong with that. What does it look like to love God? How would you recognize it if you saw it? You would recognize it by one first commandment, having no other gods before the Lord our God. Number two, second commandment, not worshiping through images or committing idolatry. No carved images of anything in the heavens above, the earth beneath, or the waters under the earth. Not bowing down to them or serving them. Number three, third commandment, not taking the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord your God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And the fourth commandment, remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's what love for God looks like. That's, that's the summary. The summary of the first four commandments is, is love for God. He even says in one of those four, uh, when it comes to the second commandment, what does he say? Showing mercy to thousands of those who love me and keep my what? Commandments. It's, it, love, love for God has always been the intent of the Ten Commandments, especially the first four. What about love for neighbor? The last six of the Ten Commandments deal with love for neighbor. What does it look like to love your neighbor as yourself? Going through them again. Sixth Commandment. Honor your father and your mother and also any other earthly authority that God places over us. That's the first, the first people that you come in contact with. Your first neighbor is a pretty close neighbor. It's your father and your mother, and you show them honor. Number two, the seventh commandment, right? Or the fifth, sixth, or I can't even remember this morning. Uh, if you love your neighbor, this might sound like an obvious thing, but you will not commit murder against your neighbor. And what does Jesus say? Murder is also hating your neighbor. Hate is the root of, of murder. Number three, you shall not, if you love your neighbor, commit adultery against them, even in your heart. Number four, you will not steal from your neighbor. Eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. If you love your neighbor, you won't steal from him. It means a lot more than that, but it means at least that. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Not bear false witness against your neighbor. And, and, and lastly, the tenth commandment, if you love your neighbor, you will not even covet. I mean, your neighbor won't even know it unless you tell him, right? It's a sin of the heart. We see the Ten Commandments were never just about the outward expressions or actions. It includes them, but it goes to the heart too. The Tenth Commandment is a big, is a big yellow, you know, flashing red light saying, don't just think this is just about your outward actions, it's about your heart's intentions as well. If you love your neighbor, you won't covet what belongs to him or her. You'll be happy for them that God has given them whatever he is, he has given them to have. So as Paul says in the book of Romans, love is the summary of the law. If you've loved your neighbor, you've kept the law. You've kept the commandments. Well, not only that, not only that, but look at the degree or the intensity with which we are to love our God and our neighbor. It's one thing to command us to love God and love our neighbor, but he says that we are to love the Lord our God, what? With all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. And again, this is an Old Testament thing. Sometimes we have this weird notion that the Old and New Testaments are so radically different. It's always been about loving God and loving neighbors. And what about your neighbor? We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're to love God with all that we have. We're to love God with all that we are. William Henriksen writes this. He says, the point, the point is that God's wholehearted love must not be answered in a half-hearted manner. Remember, we, we love him because he first loved us. And 
you know, God, God doesn't command things that aren't fitting. He doesn't command things that don't make sense. Like when, you know, it's almost Thanksgiving and, and the scriptures often say things like, you know, give thanks in all things or give thanks always. Rejoice in the Lord always. Well, if he tells us to do those things, we must have a lot to rejoice in the Lord about. We must have a lot to thank the Lord for, and we must have a lot uh, with all of our being to love God, our God, for. He has loved us that, you know, that much and, and more. And our love for our neighbor, we're told to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's, that's some kind of love. I don't know about you. I, now, I've read certain, uh, I won't mention who, but I've, I've read some writers and, and pastors and preachers that have said things like, uh, this commandment to love your neighbor as yourself really implies first that you have to learn to love yourself. I think there's a Whitney Houston song that says something about that, right? Um, and it's true. Some people have bad self-esteem. Some people you know, seem to do themselves harm. But at the end of the day, we all love ourselves very much. Thank you much. Very much. <laughs> Nobody really has trouble loving themselves. You may not like yourself all the time, but we love ourselves. We want the best for ourselves. Right. That's Jesus isn't saying, OK, it's a two step thing. This second part of the great commandment. Learn to love yourself first so that you can finally learn to love other people. We do. We already love ourselves. It's implied. It's assumed. He's saying love that other person like you love you. We all love us some us. Love some of somebody else. Love them and do what you can for them. Now, you know, at this point, when you're reading these, this great commandment, these two commandments that Christ puts together, you probably, I hope, are asking yourselves, you know, who can who can do this? Who can attain this standard? You know, you think about the rich young ruler. Remember him? You know, good teacher. Everybody calls Jesus teacher, you know, which they should, but probably didn't understand what they were saying. Good teacher, what must I do to what? Inherit eternal life? And Jesus wants to show him what he hadn't done and says, you know, you know the commandments. They're naming a few of them off. And what does he say to him? What does this man say to Jesus? I've kept all these since my youth. Been there, done that, got the T-shirt, Right. I've done all that. What else you got for me, Jesus? And then Jesus shows him by saying, sell all your stuff and give it to the poor, then follow me. He shows him he loved his stuff. He didn't love what? His neighbor or his God or Christ. He loved his stuff. He went away grieved for he had many possessions. You know, do we, do, would he have looked at this commandment that Jesus said and, and said the same thing? Would he have said, yep, I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I love my neighbor as, I, as myself perfectly. Been there, done that, got the... The bad T-shirt. Um, how, how many of us can claim we've done this even one day perfectly? None of us can. Who among us can claim that honestly we've ever loved God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength? Not for a moment. How about loving our neighbor as ourselves? That sounds a lot easier, right? Have any of us ever actually done that perfectly, loved our neighbor as we love ourselves? I don't think we have. The, the scripture would not say that we have. Well, I think here we see the, the vanity, the worthlessness of self-righteousness exposed for us. We see just how high God's standard of righteousness really is. And here we begin to see just how clearly, clearly just how far we have fallen short of the glory of God. J.C. Ryle writes this. He says, it is only gross ignorance of the requirements of God's law, which makes people undervalue the gospel. The man who has the clearest view of the moral law, the Ten Commandments, 
uh, will always be the man who has the highest sense of the value of Christ's atoning blood. Did you get that? You know, your, your, your view of God's law, of God's holiness in the law, is going to directly impact and show your view of the gospel. If you think of God's commandments as easy, and yeah, I've done that, your, your, your thoughts of your own need for Christ are going to be quite shallow. When you start looking at God's commandments and you go, wow. You know, and when, when Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God, quoting Deuteronomy, with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of, with everything. That we, we, if we have any sense at all, we know we haven't kept that. And we will have a high sense of the value of Christ's atoning blood in the gospel. And one, of, one of the ways that the law of God serves the purposes of the gospel of grace, and according to our Confession of Faith, chapter 19.7, even sweetly complies with it. You ever think of that? Our standards actually say, and I believe they're, they're scriptural, they, 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 they echo the truth of scripture, that the law of God sweetly complies with the gospel. The law is not an enemy of the gospel. We make it wrongly an enemy of the gospel, but it really isn't. And one of the ways that God's law sweetly complies with the gospel is that it shows us our sin. Paul says in Romans 3, by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law is like a mirror, James says. You look into it and you say, you know, it's, it's like, uh, I, I call this, this might, might not sound fair, but I often call this the Oprah Winfrey factor, you know, you, or the Maury Povich, whatever show you shouldn't watch that you watch, don't, don't confess to me after the service. But, you know, you watch these shows and they have these, you know, train wrecks of, you know, all kinds of, of weirdos on, on the shows. And, you know, what, what do you do? You watch them, you never watch them, but you hear of people that watch these things, right? And you watch them and you say to yourself, I'm not so bad. You know, I felt like a train wreck five minutes ago, but, you know, look, at this, get a load of this guy. You know, get a load of this person. I don't, I don't feel so bad about myself. Now I'm feeling pretty good, you know. Uh, let's, it's easy to do that. We compare ourselves for good or for ill with other people. But when you compare yourself to God's law, it's a totally different story, isn't it? You look at God's law and you say, ah. Now, you might, you know, some people like the rich young ruler where you look at God's law and they're oblivious. And you think, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I'm basically a good person. I've always kept God's commandments. I'm a respectable man. My neighbors like me, I think. You know, people still send me Christmas cards. Um, what does the law say? The law says, here's your sin. In a lot of ways, when you look at the Ten Commandments, you're seeing a catalog of your sins and mine in some way, shape, or form, even if not always outwardly. So the law shows us our sin. It shows us how far we fall short of God's holy law, his standard of righteousness. And, and why does that sweetly comply with the gospel? Because when you see your sin, the more you see your sin, the more you understand your need for Jesus Christ. The more you understand, and I understand, our need for the gospel of God's grace in Christ, his death for our sins, his resurrection for our justification the great commandment also shows us the vanity and even the hypocrisy of formalism and sentimentality in religion, even Christian religion. You know, some people may presume to love God while neglecting the love for their neighbor. Jesus here shows us that that is impossible. We, we cannot love our God without loving our neighbor. Cannot. Impossible to do. Again, even the Ten Commandments teach you this, right? It keeps them together. It doesn't have a separate set. Moses didn't come down with one tablet. Here, love God, and then, you know, if you get, get that figured out, I'll bring you the other stuff, you know, separately. It's all one thing. First John, the Apostle Paul, 
Apostle John right, rather writes 1 John 4, verses 20 to 21. He says, if anyone says, I love God, so far so good, right? If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that's from Christ, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Where do you think he got that from? Probably from our text. John got it. He understood it, and he wanted to teach it to God's people in the scriptures. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Loving God is a lot more than mere emotion or sentimentality. Loving God and loving our neighbor is a lot more than just going through the right motions in worship. It involves obeying his commandments and it also involves loving our neighbor as ourselves. Well, notice how the scribe responds to Jesus' answer in verses 32 to 33. Mark says this, and the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he, that is God, the Lord, is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. This man may have come here to test Jesus, but by the end of this discussion, what happens? He openly and willingly acknowledges that Jesus is right. That Jesus had spoken rightly and spoken truly. He shows in some ways he understood now something of the implications of Christ's words. Loving God and loving one's neighbor were much more important than even the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. That's a mouthful for a scribe to say. You're, you're, in other words, he's saying, you know, maybe he thought he was going to get the, best, the better of Jesus in this question, but by the time Jesus is done, he's saying, yeah. Even the entire sacrificial system is not a more important thing than love for God and love for one's neighbor. And that's something that's taught in the Old Testament as well. We're told in 1 Samuel 15, that's where Saul is rejected by the Lord as king. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, in, in 1 Samuel it says, To obey is better than what? Sacrifice. Now God had, God had instituted those sacrifices, right? I mean, Samuel wasn't telling Saul hey, you know, sacrifice, God really didn't want you to do that. That's not what he says at all. Remember what Saul said? You know, God had sent Saul on a mission, uh, a mission to, to wipe out uh, the Amalekites. And what, what did Saul do? Well, he went and he thought going was enough. He went, went to battle, spared the king, spared King Agag, spared the best of the sheep and the goats and the flocks and all that. He kept spoil. God had told him through the prophet, go there, wipe everything out, don't take anything. It's all unclean, it's all you know, to, be, to be destroyed, and Saul thought he knew better than God. And, and what did he say when, when Samuel said, I'm paraphrasing, right? Samuel shows up and, hey, have you done with the Lord? Oh, I've done everything the Lord said. And so Samuel says, what are all these animal noises I'm hearing? If you've done everything God said, I'm hearing a lot of sheep. You know, a lot, a lot of noise going on for, for dead sheep. And what does Saul say? Well, you know, the, the people, they've done all this, but we've kept the best ones to sacrifice them to the Lord. Did God tell him to do that? No, God said, wipe it all out. It's all unclean to me. I want it dead. Saul 
thought, well, I can keep part of the spoil as long as I can, you know, give some of it back to God as sacrifice. And so Samuel says, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken, to listen, than the fat of rams. God, God has never been about just killing animals. That's not his point. Those things were meant to point forward to Christ's sacrifice on the cross for our sins. All those Old Testament sacrifices were meant for one thing, to teach, to point forward to the Lamb of God who was to come and take, take away the sins of the world, John verses uh, 29 of chapter 1. Well, it's also true in the sense that obeying is better than sacrifice and that going through the motions in worship, either in the Old Testament times in the temple or in our day as well, while living lives of rebellion against God and his word and failing to love God and our neighbor, that's never been acceptable in the sight of God. It's never been, it's never been pleasing in God's sight for us as God's people to, well, you know, it, you know we, it's one thing to skip church. You know, we, we sometimes do that. We shouldn't do that. Um, but sometimes we kind of content ourselves with, I've checked that box. You know, I've, I've done my, you know, however long the service is, an hour and a half, whatever. I've done my two hours on Sunday. Now I can go do, you know, whatever it is I really want to do. As long as I do that, I'm fine. That's never been something that God has found acceptable. In the book of Isaiah, read through the whole book of Isaiah. You'll see that over and over again, especially in chapter one, the first chapter of the book. Uh, God calls that kind of a thing a trampling of his courts. What was the trampling of his courts? Their worship. He doesn't say, hey, you're doing the worship wrong. He's saying, you know, you're coming, I'm paraphrasing again, you, your, your prayers, your, your sacrifices, all these things, while you're living lives of iniquity, are detestable to me. He calls them, think about how hard of a thing this would be to, for God to call his people in, in Isaiah 1. He calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. His own people, Israel, he calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he says, you know, I'm not going to, when you raise your hands in prayer, I'm going to hide my eyes from you, he says. And he says in Isaiah uh, 113, God says, I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. They got the solemn assembly part right, at least outwardly. But he says, you guys are trying to, to mix these things together, to live lives of iniquity while going along with the same motions of worship that I prescribed as if that was all that mattered. And what does Jesus tell the scribe in verse 34? He says, And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, the scribe, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. You notice Mark kind of bookends our passage each time, beginning and end, with one person seeing that someone else answered wisely. The scribe saw that Jesus answered wisely and so asked him his question at the end of the, of the account. Jesus saw that he answered wisely. He, he accepted what Jesus had said. And what was his answer to him? What, what did he say to the scribe? He said, you're, quote, not far from the kingdom of God. Now, that's not a rebuke, right? I mean, he's not, he's not calling him a hypocrite and, you know, all these things, whitewashed sepulcher like he does sometimes to others in, in the Gospels. He says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Now, you think the scribe expected to hear that. Did the scribe think he was in the kingdom of God already or not? It's, it's like in, in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, I'm, again, I'm, I'm summarizing. This is the Reader's Digest version. He comes to Jesus at night. He comes to Jesus to ask him an honest question. He's not doing it with other people watching, you know. 
But he comes at night, he doesn't want people to know he's coming to Jesus. And, and what does Jesus tell him? You have, to get, you have to be born again. You must be born again. And then he says, you can't even see the kingdom of God if you're not born again. And of course, Nicodemus had no clue what he was talking about. And Jesus says to him, you're the, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things in John chapter 3. In other words, you think you're in for whatever reason, maybe because of his profession, maybe his rigorous study of God's law. And Jesus, like he tells this scribe, he doesn't say you're way out. He says, you're not far. You're not in, but you're not far from the kingdom of God. Now, we, we don't know if this scribe ever came to faith in Christ. We know Nicodemus did. The scripture, the book of John, makes no, no bones about that, that Nicodemus did come by God's grace to faith in Christ. We don't know this scribe. We don't know his name. We don't know what happened to him. We don't know if he came to know the Lord at all. You know, we, we, if you and I were writing this, which we weren't, this, this is one of those things where I think the scripture is showing its truth, the ring of truth to it. We don't like loose ends. We would have said either he stomped off and rejected Christ and shook his fist at him or whatever, or we would have, we would have written, you know, and he came to believe in Jesus and lived happily ever, laughed, ever after, you know, uh, amen. That, it doesn't say that at all. It just says Jesus says you're not far from the kingdom of God. Now, that's, there's a note of hope there, that he wasn't far off. He wasn't still in his open rebellion against Christ. But there's also a note of warning there, isn't there? It's possible to be, you know, what's the saying, close but no cigar. It's, it's, it's possible to be not far from and yet worlds apart from the kingdom of God. How many in our own day are just that way, not far from the kingdom of God, and yet not actually in the kingdom of God? How many today find themselves, even in our day, like this scribe, agreeing with Jesus, nodding the head when you hear what he says, and acknowledging him as a good teacher, maybe a good moral teacher, you hear that very often, but never coming to him that they might have life. Jesus says this to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, verses 39 to 40. He says, you search the scriptures. You search or you diligently study. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. And then he says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The first part's great. You study the scriptures intently. You search them. Yeah, I mean, they weren't just casually reading and putting it aside. They were digging into the scriptures, studying them diligently, but he, what does he say? You've missed the whole point. What are the scriptures about? The Old Testament scriptures about. They're about Jesus. And what's the application there? The first application is to come to Jesus that you might have, you might have life. You, it is possible. People have done it. The scribes and Pharisees had done it. They had studied the scriptures intently, but never come to Christ to have life. They didn't leave their Bible, so to speak, on the shelf gathering dust like many do in our day. They read them, they searched them diligently, they studied the Bible, the scriptures in the Old Testament, but they refused, I mean, it's a note of stubbornness there. You know, they refused to come to him to have life. They wanted to have their own righteousness. They didn't want to settle for the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. What about you this morning? You know, Rob said, you know, that in the, in the visible church, so to speak, you know, we don't have pastors, you may think we do, we don't have special spiritual x-ray vision 
We, we, you know, I wouldn't want that if I could, you know, but we don't know. We don't know the state of someone else's soul, whether they're a, a long-time member or, or not, for a first-time person hearing the gospel. Um, have you turned from your sin and turned to Christ by faith for salvation and life in his name? Don't settle for just being not far from the kingdom of God. Come to Christ and live for the first time. And if you're a believer in Christ this morning, maybe if you've been a believer for decades on end, and you hear this text, and maybe you're a little bit discouraged, maybe you even know, you know, you read this text about the great commandment and start thinking about, do I really love God with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength? You know, are you, are you mindful even more now of what's lacking uh, in your, your, your love for God and Savior, the Savior Jesus Christ, and in your love for your neighbor? Are you convicted even this morning, like, wow, you know, thinking about it like that. When you put it that way, I'm really seeing... Uh, how far I have, I have to go. Well, if that's the case, uh, you're, you're in good company in the saints of God in this life. That, that describes that feeling of, of the, the, how far we have yet to go in our love for God and neighbor. That describes every single saint of God in this life. The holiest man or woman of God in this life feels that same lack, if that's the way you feel this morning from hearing this text. And so we ask God to work in us by his spirit, to change us, to move our hearts, that we might love him and keep his commandments and not see them as burdensome, 1 John 5, 3, and that we might learn to love our neighbor as ourselves more and more as we ought to. And, and one of the things that we can do to, to, to work towards that, to, to, to attain that more, is dwelling on the love of God for us in Christ. The more we understand the love of God for us in Christ, the more and more we will grow in our love for him. And we will love for our neighbor as well. We, we, we dwell on the love of God for us in Christ. Uh, and I'm going to borrow words from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3. This is Paul's, these are Paul's words in a letter praying for the church at Ephesus. And this is what he says. He prays to them that the Lord Jesus Christ might, quote, according to the riches of his glory, grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's quite a statement there. He says, quite a phrase, he says, to know the love of Christ that what? Surpasses knowledge. It's too great for us to even comprehend. You can spend the rest of eternity growing in your knowledge of it, and you'll never get to the end of it. That's how much God loves us in Christ. It takes the Holy Spirit, the power of God, working in your heart and mind to even grasp a little bit of it and to grow in, in the little grasp of it that we have now. So Paul, when Paul prayed for them, one of the things he prayed was that. That's how we should pray for ourselves and each other as well. And then he goes on to say this. It sounds like a lofty standard, right? It sounds like something beyond our ability to, to, to attain to. And so the very next verse is he says, Now to him who is able, who can do it? I can't do it, you can't do it, but someone can. God can. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we read these words, the great commandment, and we know 
if we if we know ourselves at all, we know that we have to confess that we uh, on our best days, we don't love you as we ought to. We certainly don't love you with all of our heart. We love you with our hearts, but imperfectly so. We love you with our, our souls, with our minds, uh, with our lives and all of our strength. And we we try to love our neighbor as ourselves. But we know we far, far, fall far short of that standard. We thank you that if we are in Christ, if we are justified and forgiven and accepted by you through Christ your Son, that you even, though imperfect as our best good works are, that you are pleased in Christ to accept not just our persons but our good works as pleasing in your sight as a father does the works of his children. We thank you for this good good encouragement that we have from you and your word. And we ask that you would do as Paul prays here in Ephesians 3, that you would work in us by your Holy Spirit. Give us understanding. Help us in our, 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 our vast weaknesses. Help us to learn to, to understand the love that you have for us in Christ that surpasses understanding, that we might more and more grow in our love for you because you loved us first, and that we might learn more and more and be free to love our neighbor as ourselves because you love us that much, that you give us all things, even Christ Jesus, your Son. And if you've given him to us, how will you withhold from us any good thing? We thank you for your great love for sinners such as us who deserve nothing but your wrath, your just wrath for our sins. And yet you loved us when we were still sinners and sent Christ to die for us that we might be reconciled to you and be able to call you our God. Uh, Work in us by your spirit. Help us to love you and keep your commandments and help us to love our neighbors as ourselves that you might be pleased and you might be glorified. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.